0: Tell you about the second star, okay? Because the second star absolutely wrecked my life. I heard about it when I was a high school student here in Atlanta. One of our youth leaders did a talk, and he mentioned this star. I didn't know how to talk to God for about two months after I heard about this star. It's called Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. You can pick your pronunciation. I'm obviously going with Betelgeuse, and Betelgeuse is incredible. Here it is in the night sky. I know it doesn't look incredibly ferocious. But it's 427 light years away, so that's 427 times 5.88 trillion miles away from us right now. Draw it in a little closer with the Hubble Space Telescope, and you can start to get a little bit of the feeling of its intensity, but this is the crazy thing about Betelgeuse. Are you ready for this? Betelgeuse is twice the size. Are you ready? You think I'm going to say twice the size of the sun? Oh, no. It's twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun, Betelgeuse is. It's crazy. If the earth were a golf ball, <laughs> Beetlejuice would be the height of six Empire State Buildings on top of each other. Now, come on, have you seen the Empire State Building? I mean, maybe what you're going to need to do is gather the family, get a golf ball, get some plane tickets, and fly up to New York. And you're going to go into Midtown, you're going to take your golf ball and put it on the sidewalk outside the Empire State Building. Don't worry about people thinking you're crazy, they're not even going to notice you in New York. You're going to go across the street, you're going to look up at the Empire State Building and imagine five more Empire State Buildings on top of the Empire State Building, that's Betelgeuse and that's the earth and somewhere you're on it. You could fit 262 trillion earths inside Betelgeuse. So if the earth were a golf ball, that would be enough golf balls to fill up the Superdome with golf balls 3,000 times. When I heard that as a teenager, that stumped me right there, because most of my praying had been advising God, correcting God, (laughs) suggesting things to God, drawing diagrams for God reviewing things with God, counseling God.
1: Hey everybody, Pastor Nathan here. Uh, we had some audio issues on Sunday, so I thought I would just kind of redo things here at my kitchen table. Uh, that way everybody that's um, you know listening online or catching it on YouTube can, uh, can catch up. But that video that we opened with was by a pastor named Louis Giglio, and he has a church down in Atlanta. And he was doing that a number of years ago, that video uh, on tour, I think it was called the How Great Is Our God Tour, uh, or indescribable, where those songs came from. And that clip where he's talking about Beetlejuice, I think is actually the second planet that he uses as an example, if the earth was a golf ball. And he goes on and on talking about these different sized planets and stars and how big they are. Um, and the point of it all is to give us a better perspective of how big God is. And it makes me feel pretty small. <laughs> the earth is a golf ball and somewhere you're on it. But um, that same God, the God that created this whole universe that we can only see a fraction of, wants you to know him better. And uh, that just really blows me away. But what that requires of all of us is to get out of the way. Uh, we have to get out of the way of ourselves. And I'm calling this series, The King's Speech, um, because... It's going to be a series because he, Jesus goes on for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the goal of this sermon is for us to see ourselves clearly, to see ourselves more clearly. Um, not just how we perform on the outside, not like the Pharisees did, but what's going on in the inside. So it's not just about right doing, but it's really about right being. And Jesus is going to address his, our attitudes towards um, ourselves our attitudes towards sin, attitudes towards the Lord, and uh, attitudes towards the world. So he's going to address all those things. They're actually called the Beatitudes. If you look in your Bible there at the top of the section, probably says the Beatitudes. You may have even heard some pastors say these are the attitudes that we are supposed to have. That's why they're called the Beatitudes. But that word, Beatitude, actually means blessing. And Jesus starts off this speech by talking about blessings. Uh, Blessing, you know, one who is blessed means one who is singularly favored or approved by God. And the good news is uh, that you and I, if we are in Christ, we are approved. We are favored. But Jesus starts off this message to his disciples talking about blessings that will accompany the person who exhibits these Christ-like characteristics in their life. Um, And here's the point that Jesus wants to make is You can't do it on your own. You can't do it. These standards that he's about ready to to set out are way too high for anybody to keep in the flesh, in their own human power. Um, Eventually, he will go on to say that unless your righteousness goes farther than the scribes and Pharisees, unless it exceeds theirs, you won't make it into the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are the guys, the religious elite, that kept all the rules. They were the guys that did everything perfectly perfectly from the law, from the legal standpoint. Uh, Jesus said, you're going to have to go farther than that. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom life. And we get to partake in the blessings of the kingdom if we're a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, those who do not love the king can't live like the king. And you can only live like the king if you're submitted to or if you're subject to the king. Uh, there was an archbishop of England uh, who said that it would be impossible to conduct the affairs of the kingdom of Britain according to the Sermon on the Mount, because the people were not loyal subjects to their king. Uh, that's a pretty condemning statement. But this life that Jesus is going to be talking about is an utterly new approach to living, uh, where we can have joy instead of despair, where we can have peace instead of conflict. Um, a blessedness that comes from Inside of us it doesn't come from outside of us, right? It's not affected by external circumstances. It's not created externally, so it can't be destroyed externally. Um, it's not like the world gives. Um, our Constitution, Constitution of uh, the United States, our Declaration of Independence has been uh, the topic of heated debate over the last couple of years, but in it, it guarantees us the right to the pursuit of happiness, and. In the constitution of the kingdom, which is what this has been called sometimes, Jesus points out that the path to that happiness is not made up of the material. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through verses 1 through 12, this whole section that we call the Beatitudes, and then we're going to take them individually. So verse 2, And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, at first pass, these blessings and promises don't seem to match up. They seem a little bit paradoxical, because this isn't the kind of stuff that makes up happiness in the world's eyes. The world says that happy are the rich, or happy are the powerful, or happy are the popular, right? Uh, but the kingdom of heaven takes a completely different route. And if you notice the progression of these character qualities, the poor in spirit, uh, this reflects the right attitude that we should have towards our sinful condition. And then this leads us to mourn over our spiritual state. And then when we grasp the depth of our depravity, uh, we become meek and we become gentle. And then we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be right. And not just to be right, but to be whole before the Lord. And that includes being merciful to others, pure in heart, and having a peacemaking spirit. So these are the Beatitudes that we're going to be going through. But first, I want to take a look at what it means to be poor in spirit. We hear that word uh, poor in the scriptures, and it makes me think of like the widow's mite. You know, the, the old woman that came to the temple. She wanted to give an offering, and all she had were these two little coins, and they basically added up to a penny. And she drops them in the bucket and Jesus and his disciples are watching this happen. And he says she gave more than everybody else because everybody else here gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her need like she needed that penny. And so Jesus is talking about her and that, that jogs my memory when I think about poor or the lady that Elisha came to and she was making a meal and he said, well, why don't you make me a meal first and then uh, make one for yourself? And she said, this is literally our last meal. This is a final meal. Me and my son are going to eat and then we're going to just die because we don't have anything else. But those are the types of people that I think of in the Bible when I think of poor. Um, but the word in the Greek here literally means to cower, like back in a, in a corner. Um, this is a word that they used for beggars, uh, people that were sitting along the sides of the road or sitting, you know, up close to the temple. And they were reaching out and with one hand they were reaching out for money. And with their other hand, you know, they would be covering their faces just out of shame that they were having to do this. And so that is the type of poverty that he's talking about. Um, these two words, uh, poor and spirit, are going to talk about our spiritual depravity. Um, these are those who are completely dependent upon other people for substance because there was no way that they could provide for themselves on their own. They didn't have the means to do it. There's a similar statement in Luke six, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so a lot of commentators have looked at these two verses, the one from Luke and the one from Matthew and thought, you know, Jesus is talking about, you know, materialism and blessed are you if you don't have anything. Uh, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, blessed are you if you are completely dependent on other people just to get by, just to live. That would go against some of the other things that he says. Um, but what he's talking about here is not physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. Uh, this is recognizing our spiritual brokenness and our complete hopelessness and helplessness apart from Jesus Christ. And that's the perspective really that Louis was wanting to get across, that our distance from God's holiness is so unfathomable. We can't even, we can't even comprehend how far we are from His holiness. Um, we are completely depraved, completely deprived, and total dependence on God's grace for salvation. The problem is, is that a lot of people just don't see themselves that way. Uh, non-Christians certainly don't. And even some Christians, uh, don't see themselves that way. Uh, they might think that You know, Lord, when you chose me, like, good choice. You know, I can see why you did that. I mean, I have talents and I use them for you and I tithe. Um, You know, I support good organizations and I volunteer. uh, So I can see why you chose me, God. Um, But while those are good things to do, if there's just an inkling, just a little bit of self righteousness there, then we've lost sight of the truth. And that is that we can only. Beg for mercy and forgiveness. Uh, It's only because of God's gracious plan in Jesus taking the punishment for our sins can we be saved. And once we get to the point where we see ourselves clearly, then God can start to do a work inside of us. But all that self-effort, all that pride has to disappear. Because what we're doing when we try to earn points with God, when we try to earn our way into his good graces, is we are, in effect, making him less holy. We're making him less holy. Um, that's something interesting to think about when we're trying to do thing, um, when we're doing to do things on our own via our own works. Um, that's why Paul said that all of the things on his religious resume, all of the things that he had accomplished were like filthy rags. They were like dung literally um, compared to what he needed to be righteous. So none of it meant anything. In Isaiah 66, God's talking about judgments, And hope, judgments on those that reject him and hope for those that have humbled themselves before him. This is Isaiah 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word humble and contrite spirit contrite simply means like affected by guilt like you're remorseful for what you've done that's what a contrite spirit is david says in psalm 51:17 my sacrifice oh god is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh god you will not despise in luke 18 jesus is talking to his disciples and he really wants to drive home this point of what a contrite spirit looks like. And so he tells them this parable. There are two men who go up to the temple. There is a Pharisee and he goes up there to pray. And then along with him, there is a tax man. Now the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They were the ones who kept all the rules. Um, everybody knew who they were. They were very well respected. And then you've got a tax collector. Now, Matthew, his ears would have perked up when he heard Jesus talking about this because that's what he used to be. He used to be a tax collector. And it's that time of the year where everybody's getting their W-2s and it's about tax time. And people don't like the IRS and uh, people hated tax collectors back then, because what they were really were uh, traitors. They were people who were working for the Romans, collecting taxes for the Romans. And so they were hated even more than the IRS is still like today. But they're both there at the temple and the Pharisee begins to pray. Now, what they would do is they would stand up and pray really loud so that everybody could hear them. And he says this, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers or crooks or adulterers or God forbid, like this tax collector. He says, I tithe from all my income. I fast twice a week. And that's his prayer. So um, in case you're wondering, this is what self-righteousness sounds like. But the taxman says that he was slumped over. He didn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest in remorse saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever beat your chest? Like, not in the way the world does, right, where they pound their chest in a prideful way, but beat your chest just in self-loathing over your sin, over your condition, over whatever you're going through, because that's what being poor in spirit looks like. Um, it's genuine. It's not an act. This tax man knows exactly who he is, and he's crying out for forgiveness. He has the proper perspective of who God is and what his condition is like. Uh, Jesus will tell the Pharisees later on, he'll say, listen, prostitutes and tax collectors will go into the kingdom of heaven before you will, because they know their condition. They see themselves rightly. They know they need forgiveness. They're willing to humble themselves and ask for it. But the Pharisees were prideful. I mentioned Psalm 51 just a minute ago. This is the one that David wrote after the prophet Nathan appeared to him because of his affair with Bathsheba and, uh, and killing his husband, or killing her husband, rather. Um, this is what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, David had tremendous guilt, and rightly so. Um, but like the tax collector here, David is broken over his sin. He's busted up about it. And Jesus tells us that of the two men that went up there to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that the tax collector was the one who went away justified. Now, that word justified is such a huge word. And to understand it, we just have to break it apart. We say justified. It is just as if I'd never sinned just as if I'd never sinned. The slate is completely wiped clean. That's a huge, huge word. And that's what joy is made up of. Uh, Joy is not the absence of troubles, but it is the presence of Jesus in the midst of all the brokenness. Okay. So all that addresses the meaning of being poor in spirit, but why is it located at the beginning? Why does it come first? Well, it comes first because humility is the foundation of all other graces. Uh, the opposite of humility is pride, right? And pride is the foundation of all sin. That's where it starts. And um, humility is the foundation of all other graces. It's the starting point. Often people that have the most difficulty... um coming into the kingdom, like putting their faith and hope in Jesus are people that are just, they're moral. They're simply good people. You know, they love their family. They work hard, they volunteer, but they don't see their need for forgiveness. They don't see their need for Jesus. And they probably even say that, like, why do I need Jesus? You know, I have everything that I need. I'm a good person. But that statement, that mentality, why do I need Jesus is just as much um, of a prideful statement even when they're smiling and helping somebody as Satan's was when he was trying to take God's power um, and, you know, ascend to the throne, because you are saying in both instances that I don't need God. I'm righteous enough on my own, which obviously is false because um, pride has no part of God's kingdom. It has no place uh, the entry door, as has been said, to the kingdom can only be entered on your knees. Like you can't stand tall and walk through the door that enters into the kingdom. You have to be humble. Uh, there was a song that we used to sing when I was a kid uh, by a group called the Maranatha Singers, and uh, it was, Humble Yourself in the Sight of the Lord. And it was one of those songs where like, you know, one side of the church would sing and then the other side would sing. And it was kind of one of those, you know, it was a big deal back then, sing things in a round. But it comes from James four, where he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility, Humility is emptying yourself. So what are we emptying ourselves of? We're literally emptying ourselves of us. We're getting rid of all of that stuff. Only when you're empty, can you be filled? Only when you come to the realization that you are completely unworthy, can you be made worthy? Only when you die to yourself can you truly live. This is the upside down kingdom of God. Uh, that's what he's talking about. If you go if you go to a bookstore nowadays, it doesn't really matter which one, Christian or secular, you're probably not going to find a lot of books about emptying yourself, about humility. Probably not going to find any at all. But I was curious at what kind of books were topping the list for 2022 to read. And here's some of the top ones. Big magic. That's the first one. This is the creative living beyond fear. It's kind of the idea that there's, you know, incredible ideas out there just floating around waiting for somebody. Um, and then there's life-changing magic of tidying up. So if you get your life really organized, then you're gonna you're gonna be happy, apparently. Um number three, the power of self-discipline. And number four, this one's been around a while, how to win friends and influence people. And then the last one was finding your own North Star. Uh, magic, life coaching, and science. So people are definitely interested in the spiritual. They're not real interested in submitting themselves to a creator. So people are searching for the mystical, but in all the wrong places. It's all about filling yourself up. That's what the world has to offer. But a, a soul that is humble, that's poor in spirit, um, is ready to receive. If it's not, then Christ is obscured by ourselves we get in the way. Uh, Proverbs 16, 5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Arrogance or pride is an abomination to the Lord. It's almost like he knew what that word was going to be used for. Um, it's an abomination. In the book of Revelation, Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos, and he's going to, uh, John's going to write the book of Revelation. But Jesus tells them, I want you to write seven messages or seven letters to seven churches. And theologians um, believe that these seven letters to the seven churches represent the seven ages of the church. So they divide it up um, into different eras, if you will. And not coincidentally, we are living in the final age. We're in the last era. And I don't know that too many people would dispute that. Um, you know, if you, if you talk to anybody, we are definitely living in the end days. Uh, the stage is being set for the Antichrist and uh, the curtain is ready to be pulled back and maybe even in our lifetime. But uh, a lot of people are looking for the Antichrist. What I would say to that is that uh, Jesus told us to look for his coming, uh, not to look for the Antichrist, but to look for his coming, because um, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to look for the Antichrist if we ain't going to be here. And I'm not planning on being here. Uh, but this is what he told John to write. This is the final letter. This is to the church in Laodicea, uh, Revelations three fourteen, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the church in Laodicea was very prideful. Very prideful. Um, Jesus isn't speaking to the world here. He's speaking to the church. Um, he's saying, if you were cold, I could convict you. If you were hot, I could use you. But because you have one foot in and one foot out, because you're lukewarm, it makes me sick to my stomach. I'm going to puke because of that, is what he's saying. Wherever self is exalted, wherever pride's living, wherever self is exalted, Christ cannot be. That's just the bottom line. Is Christ king in my life or is self king? So how do we achieve humility It sounds like a contradiction of terms. How do we achieve humility? Um, But by definition, it just means that it can't start with us. Can't start with us. It has to start with Jesus. Uh, There's a saying that you've probably heard that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often. Um, you can't think less of yourself. Like we're already down there. We're already low, okay? Jesus doesn't want us to, um to think less of ourselves. He doesn't want to leave us in a hopeless, helpless situation. He wants to bring us out of that situation, restore us to be in his blessing. That's what he wants to do. So humility is emptying ourselves, making room for him. Those self-help books I mentioned, they're all about self-discipline. And how can I train myself? How can I mold myself into the best version of myself? But even self-discipline can be a form of pride if it is works-based religion, if it's trying to save ourselves through just being very disciplined. That's something that Martin Luther did before he finally read and understand the verse in Habakkuk that the righteous will live by their faith. So self-imposed efforts are the enemy of humility. It takes divine work of the Holy Spirit to show you and me exactly what we are without him. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter five, he was going off on the people, uh, pronouncing woes and judgments. And here's, here's what he said. He says, "'Woe to you who amass wealth greedily. "'Woe to you who consumed with wine, "'you guys that are heroes at drinking games. "'Woe to the wicked who mock God with open sin. "'Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. "'Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes.'" Woe to those who subvert justice. Doesn't sound all that ancient, does it? Kind of sounds like today. Those are the six woes of chapter five. And then listen to what happens in chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were the seraphim. Each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Isaiah sees all of this stuff, pronounces all of these woes, and then he sees the Lord and he says, I am ruined. Woe is me. God's holiness is too much for him to take in. And when Jesus appeared to John at the island of Patmos, it says that when he saw him, he fell down at his feet as if dead. And when Jesus went to Peter and said, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Uh, I want to address the crowd here. And so he gets in Peter's boat and he pushes off a little ways and he talks to the crowd. And then he said, "Okay, now I want you to push out into deeper water and let down your nets. And Peter kind of sighs because he said, you know, we've been fishing all night, master, and we haven't caught anything, but... At your word, we'll go ahead and put down the nets, which is a pretty smart thing to say. And when he let down the nets, so many fish were going into the nets that the nets were breaking. And they had to call, you know, James and John over to help them out. And they put so much fish in the boats that they were beginning to sink almost. And at that moment, Peter turned around. He looked at Jesus and he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So they saw the Lord, Isaiah And Peter. They both saw the Lord and they were humbled immediately. But God's saving work still requires our cooperation. There's a personal responsibility that we have when we see him. We have to respond. God said to Isaiah, he said, who will go preach for us? Isaiah said, I'll go. Jesus said to Peter, he said, follow me. He had to get up and follow after Jesus. So, How do we respond to get this type of humility? How do we respond? First, we have to take our eyes off of ourselves. We get very um, self-interested. We spend a lot of time worrying about ourselves. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Lord. Because when they saw him, then their pride was gone. We need to study his word. Uh, We need to pray. We need to do those things. We need to seek after him. The world would say that you need to look inward. You need to look inward. You need to find your faults so you can fix them. Whereas the word would say, look to the one who is faultless and he will lift you up. Second, we have to starve the flesh. We got to starve the flesh. The things that pride feeds on, got to get rid of it. Um, Remove anything that promotes pride rather than looking for things like praise let's say we need to be wary of things like praise because of the pitfalls and pride that we can fall into. There's nothing wrong with receiving praise, receiving, you know, accolades, but the evil is when we go looking for it. Uh Romans 13, I always think of this. Uh Paul says, "Make no provision for the flesh." So don't set the table for your flesh because if you set the table, the flesh is going to eat. So you got to starve it out. And last, this is the easiest part. We simply ask the Lord for humility. Simply ask for it. Uh, David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God is so ready to give us the gift of humility way before we ask for it. So when we look at him, when we spend time with him, when we starve the flesh, when we ask for humility, he is faithful to give it to us. Um, I read this week that humility is something that we should constantly pray for, but never thank God that we have. We should constantly pray for it, but never thank God that we have. Because the moment we start to say, God, thank you that I am so humble, you begin to sound like that Pharisee at the temple. So if we're to pray for it constantly, but never thank God for it, how do we know when we get it? Uh, well, first... You know, we really need to be weaned from ourselves. That's not a word that we use very often anymore because we tend to rush kids through, you know, the weaning process from, you know, mom's milk to, you know, solid food so quickly. But basically, we need to grow up in the faith. We need to grow up spiritually. Um, And oftentimes we think that that means just less of us and more of God. I need less of me and I need more of God. But actually, we need to get to the place where Paul was uh, in two of the books that we've covered already, one being Galatians. Uh, Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. So it's not about less of ourselves. It's actually about none of ourselves is what it is. He becomes the goal. And then we ask ourselves, kind of ask yourself, how much do I look forward to spending time with him? How much do I look forward to being like him? Because um, what we're told in 1 John 3, 2, he says, when we see him, we will be like him. So how much do we look forward to that? We also will no longer complain about our situations. Now, granted, um, because we don't necessarily get to the place where we, you know, say we're so humble. So these are going to be things that are more evident to people, other people, than they are to us. But we get to the place where we no longer complain about our situations. Americans are very discontent people by nature. We have the right to pursue happiness, but there are very few truly happy people because a lot of that happiness, most of it, um, depends on things that are external from things that they can get, things that they can do. Um, But we tend to compare ourselves to others. So-and-so has it better than us. So-and-so has more than us. And uh, so we're, we're not to complain about our situations. But the truth is we deserve so much worse than anything that we could experience in this life. That's the truth. So when we get to the place where we're humble, where we can walk in humility, we don't complain about our situations because we realize our spiritual state before Christ where we are now and where we'd be if we hadn't accepted, if he hadn't chosen us. First um, Peter 4.16 says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, God, glorify God. And Paul writes to the Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And when we gain humility, it should make us spend more time in prayer should make us spend more time in prayer. The actual beggar is begging for physical sustenance. But with the spiritual beggar, we need that spiritual food. That's what we need to be empowered by him, to be guided by him every single day. Uh, James has some really harsh words for those that lack humility. And he says this, James 4.13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. See, to James, doing anything without being submitted to the will of the Lord is evil and arrogance. Jesus told his disciples, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Right? Nothing. And while that's true, spiritually, it's also true just practically, like we need the power of God just to breathe and for our heart to continue beating, like that's true. And, you know, over these last couple of years, there has been so much emphasis placed on our physical health, um, which is fine. But if we had the same amount of dedication and concern about our spiritual health, uh, the world would be a much different place. And so uh, that is where we need to put our energies, first and foremost, is in our spiritual health. And when we take Christ on his terms and none other, um, our humility is going to be evident through our worship, through our worship and our thankfulness to God over his salvation and what he's provided for us, our unending gratitude towards the Lord and a constant realization that everything that we have, uh, both spiritually and physically, is a gift from the Lord. It all comes from him. So we've talked about what it means to be poor in spirit. Uh, we talked about why it's situated first in the Beatitudes, um, how to achieve it, and how to know when we have it. So now we'll just kind of touch on what's the result of being poor in spirit. Like, why? Like, what's the promise? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you're humble, you get to inherit the kingdom. When your life is surrendered to Jesus, when you're subject to him, you get to inherit the kingdom. In Luke twelve thirty two, Jesus is talking to his disciples about not being anxious in the world, which, you know, we all have a tendency to do. And he says this, this fear not little flock for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you the kingdom. We get to trade this world for the next, this broken world for his renewed heaven and earth. See, in this world right now, we're all keenly aware that there's a pecking order, right? There are, there are people that are more important than us. There are things that we'll never get to do. There are places that we'll never get to go because of status or money or talent. And so we realize that from an early age that, um, you know, there are things we just aren't going to be able to partake in. But, you know, our carnal minds sometimes take that into heaven. And thinking that, man, when we get there, you know, there's going to be some super important people there. Um, There's probably places I won't get to go because there's going to be so many people, you know, up next to the throne. But the reality is, you know, Jesus said uh, the first will be last and the last will be first, which means there is no first or last. Um, Everybody who is there is only there because of God's grace. It's not because of anything they did, it's completely dependent upon what he did, God's grace. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount really is about the way that we're designed to be. Like, this is the way we were supposed to live. And who knows more about something than the one who designed it, right? Um, but the Bible is not just an instruction manual. You may have heard people say that it's an instruction manual for life. Um, I don't like instruction manuals. <laughs> I have like five of them in my tool chest right now. Uh, guys don't like reading. Uh, manuals, right? Uh, don't tell me what to do. But that's why it's not just an instruction manual. What it is actually is an autobiography. Um, God wrote the story of how he created us, why he created us, how he loves us, what he did to save us. So that is what he gave us in his word, a book about himself. And in it, he gives us the pathway to happiness and blessing. And he starts with here, happy are the humble. That's what I call this, happy are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a wonderful verse in Isaiah 57 where God is talking about bringing comfort to the humble or to the poor in spirit. I'm gonna read this out of the New Living Translation. "'For the high and honored one who lives forever, "'whose name is holy,' says, "'I live in the high and holy place, "'and I also live with those who are sorry for their sins "'and have turned from them and are not proud.'" I give new strength to the spirit of those without pride and also to those whose hearts are sorry for their sins. See, we're spiritual beggars who are completely dependent upon God's grace for forgiveness, to deliver us out of our spiritual poverty. He lives with us. He restores us. He forgives us. And then he adopts us, grafts us into his family, and we become heirs, heirs with Christ. We actually get to inherit the kingdom. Um, We approach God, we approach Jesus as broken beggars, but we leave restored sons of God. That's the way we leave. And that's the beauty of it. When we humble ourselves, the result is inheriting the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about more next week. Have a good one.